Welcome to Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time. I'm your host, John Rodriguez, and this is the third episode of the podcast, A Night at the Theater, Dr. Charles A. Leal and Lincoln's Final Hours. Charles Augustus Leal was a surgeon in the Union Army during the American Civil War and is best known as the first doctor to arrive at the presidential box at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865, after John Wilkes Booth fatally shot President Abraham Lincoln in the head. His prompt treatment allowed Lincoln to live until the next morning. In history classes across America, whenever Lincoln's assassination is taught, little to no information is included about Dr. Leal. Not only should more information be taught about Dr. Leal's efforts that fateful night in Washington, D.C., but also about his later medical work. Dr. Charles Leal was a thoughtful and compassionate doctor, traits rarely found today in the medical world, who gave his services to the poor in the Asiatic cholera outbreak of 1866. He was the author of several technical books and papers, and he contributed to New York a system by which thousands of mothers and sick children were given saltwater baths on floating hospitals. In addition, he held office in numerous medical, scientific, and charitable societies and published essays on medical, surgical, and scientific subjects. He also suggested to Mayor William Strong, the mayor of New York City from 1895 to 1897, that municipal piers be used for recreational purposes. Dr. Charles Leal was not only the first doctor to treat President Abraham Lincoln on the night he was shot, but he was also simply a doctor trying to help those in need. Charles wore other hats as well, such as that of a husband, a father, and a grandfather. Leal's story, hidden history that has remained long forgotten, is the story of a young American doctor caught up in an inconceivable situation and a visionary president with only hours left to live. Quick side note, there are seven existing accounts that were given by Dr. Charles A. Leal of his experiences the night President Lincoln was shot. Five date from 1865, one from 1867, and one from 1909. The variations among the accounts are minimal, and therefore Leal's recollections reflected in this podcast episode come from all seven accounts, although mainly from the only time that Leal ever spoke in public about the events of that terrible night in 1909, the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's birth, when Leal addressed the New York commandery of the Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States. April 14, 1865, Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C. They may have been late, but President Abraham Lincoln and his wife Mary had finally arrived at the theater to see Our American Cousin, a three-act play by English playwright Tom Taylor. Shortly after 10 p.m., the comedy was well into its last act. In the presidential box, President and Mrs. Lincoln and their guest, Major Henry Rathbone, and his fiancée, Clara Harris, laughed at the show along with the audience, not knowing that Booth was just outside the door. Alone on stage, actor Harry Hawk delivered the funniest line of the play. Society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal. You sock old man trap. As the audience roared, 
Booth stepped inside the presidential box, brandishing a 44 caliber pistol. Charles Augustus Leal was born on March 26, 1842 in New York City. His father, William Pickett Leal, had immigrated from England in 1836, and four years later he married 17-year-old Anna Maria Burr, the daughter of a wealthy sea captain, William Burr. The marriage was tragically cut short a year later when Leal's father drowned at sea, leaving Anna to care for their one-year-old son. Anna did not remain a widow for long. In June 1844, she married Dr. George Humphreys Wilson. During the 1850s, Leal's stepfather oversaw the United States Marine Hospital in Portland, Maine, and Leal recounted receiving his first surgical instruction at that hospital as he visited the wards. Wilson was pleased when his stepson told him he wanted to be a physician like himself, and in 1860, 18-year-old Leal enrolled at a local medical school where he was taught how medicines were compounded, analyzed, and tested, and the antidotes for poison. After graduating in 1863, Leal felt he had much more to learn. With his stepfather's financial support, Leal enrolled at Bellevue Hospital Medical College in New York City, where he also received private instruction from Dr. Frank H. Hamilton and Dr. Austin Flint Sr. Concerning Dr. Hamilton, Leal's timing was fortuitous. Hamilton had just returned from serving in military hospitals. When he wasn't attending lectures at Bellevue, Leal shadowed Dr. Hamilton as he made his rounds at the Blackwell Island Hospital and learned military hygiene, how to dissect, amputate, and litigate arteries, repair dislocations, and the treatment of gunshot wounds. By February 1864, Hamilton felt Leal was competent enough to recommend him for the Army's medical cadet program. After passing his Army Medical Board exam, Leal served in the U.S. Army Hospital in Elmira, New York as a medical cadet, working his way up to over overseeing two wards. In that position, Leal tended both wounded Union soldiers and Confederate prisoners. Eventually, he was appointed duty surgeon at the barracks, attending sick call. In March 1865, Leal was awarded his MD degree and sat for and passed his Army Medical Board exams. Commissioned as Assistant Surgeon of Volunteers, he was assigned to the United States Army General Hospital in Armory Square as Surgeon in Charge of the Wounded Commissioned Officers Ward. It was his disposition in the nation's capital that provided the basis for Leal's involvement in the events of the Lincoln assassination. It started with a walk along Pennsylvania Avenue on the evening of April 11, 1865. During his stroll, Leal noticed that a large crowd had gathered in front of the executive mansion. His curiosity led him to see what was happening. Leal was rewarded by being witness to Abraham Lincoln's final public speech. He was profoundly impressed by Lincoln that night, describing his, quote, divine appearance as he stood in the rays of light which penetrated the windows of the White House, end quote. A few days later, when Leal heard that the president would be attending the theater on the night of April 14, 1865, he purchased a ticket in the hopes of getting another glimpse of the great man. 
Too late to buy a ticket in the orchestra section, where he would have been able to look up at Lincoln during the play, Charles settled for a seat in the second floor dress circle. On the morning of Good Friday, April 14, 1865, actor John Wilkes Booth learned President Abraham Lincoln would attend a performance of the comedy Our American Cousin that night at Ford's Theater, a theater Booth frequently performed at. Booth had a very active role in politics during the years before and during the Civil War. He was pro-slavery and detested abolitionists. In 1859, while rehearsing for a play in Richmond, he joined the local militia unit so that he would be able to travel with them to witness the execution of abolitionist leader John Brown. He detested President Lincoln and was known to have publicly denounced the Lincoln administration during several public events. It all came to a head during the winter of 1864-1865 as Booth and several other conspirators gathered to plan the kidnapping, an idea which eventually transfigured into the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. With the arrival of April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth's moment had finally arrived. His name would live on for all eternity, a goal that many actors and actresses never achieve. Charles Leal had been invested in the play when suddenly pandemonium spread throughout the theater. He watched as a man leapt from the presidential box down to the stage, a dagger in hand. It was clear to Dr. Leal that the man had injured his foot during the leap, and as he disappeared behind the scene on the opposite side of the stage, cries rang out that the president had been murdered. Others cried out, Kill the murderer! Shoot him! As the panic-stricken audience rushed towards the exits, Jumping to his feet as cries for a doctor, a doctor echoed through the, the theater, Dr. Leo rushed through the crowd towards the door that would lead inside the presidential box. Once the usher blocking the door had been made aware of Dr. Leo's presence, he was admitted right away. Once inside this door, a hallway led to a second door, which is where the presidential box could be found. The young doctor had no idea what he was about to encounter, and for a brief second he may have panicked, before his military training naturally kicked in. With the calmest deliberation and force of will, he brought all of his senses to their greatest activity and walked forward to his duty. Major Rathbone, one of the president's guests in the presidential box, had bravely attempted to prevent John Wilkes Booth from fleeing the scene, and as a result, Rathbone had been stabbed and seriously wounded. Dr. Leal instantly determined that Rathbone would live and turned his attention to President Lincoln. Announcing to the two ladies present that he was a United States Army surgeon, Leal did his best to soothe a very distraught Mrs. Lincoln. Asking a gentleman by the door to require some brandy and water, Dr. Leal turned his full attention to the silent 16th president. At first glance, President Lincoln appeared to be dead. With his eyes closed and head falling forward, his body was being held upright in the chair by Mrs. Lincoln, who wept uncontrollably. From the position of the body, Dr. Leo was able to surmise that Mrs. Lincoln had instantly sprung into action after the president had been wounded and kept the body from falling to the floor. Unable to detect a pulse, 
Dr. Leo and bystanders moved Lincoln's body down to the floor on his back. Leo had been holding Lincoln's head and shoulders during this move, and his hand came in contact with a clot of blood near the president's left shoulder. Thinking back to the dagger in the hand of the assassin and Major Rathbone's bloody wound, Dr. Leo assumed that Lincoln had been stabbed. Once Lincoln's coat and shirt had been cut open, the young doctor searched but found no wound on the body. He then lifted the eyelids and noticing evidence of brain damage, Dr. Leo quickly ran his fingers through the president's blood-soaked hair, examining the skull. It was at this moment that Dr. Leo discovered the mortal wound. President Lincoln had been shot in the back part of the head, behind the left ear. Removing the obstructing clot of blood from the wound, Leo was able to relieve the pressure on the president's brain. Years later, Dr. Leo would have this to say about the wound the president received. Quote, a Derringer pistol had been used, which has sent a large round ball on its awful mission through one of the thickest, hardest parts of the skull and into the brain. The history of surgery fails to record a recovery from such a fearful wound, and I have never seen or heard of any other person with such a wound and injury to the sinus of the brain and to the brain itself who lived even for an hour." End quote. Although the pressure on the president's brain had been relieved for the moment, he still did not wake up. Fearful that the president could die from a lack of oxygen, Dr. Leo proceeded to revive him by artificial respiration. After repeated efforts, signs of recovery from the profound shock were attained. Then a feeble action of the heart and irregular breathing followed. Dr. Leo then pronounced his diagnosis and prognosis. Quote, his wound is mortal. It is impossible for him to recover. End quote. This message was telegraphed all over the country. While Leo was attending to the fallen president, two other doctors arrived to assist him. Dr. Charles S. Taft and Dr. Albert F. A. King. Leal expressed a desire to have the president taken, as soon as he had gained sufficient strength, to the nearest house on the opposite side of the street because the carriage ride to the White House was too dangerous. While waiting for Lincoln to gain strength, Laura Keene, an actress in the play, appealed to Dr. Leal to allow her to hold the president's head. He granted this request and she sat on the floor of the box and held his head on her lap. The time arrived to move the president's body and carefully, several men picked up Lincoln and slowly carried him out of the theater where it was packed with an angry mob. Leo called out, quote, guards, clear the passage, guards, clear the passage, end quote. And the space was quickly cleared, protected by a line of soldiers in the position of present arms with swords, pistols, and bayonets. Dr. Leo was supporting the president's head, removing clots of blood from the wound as the journey went on. The crowd in the street completely obstructed the doorway, and a captain approached Leal and said, quote, Surgeon, give me your commands and I will see that they are obeyed, end quote. Leal asked him to clear a passage to the nearest house opposite. With his sword and word of command, the captain cleared the way. Crossing the street was a slow process, since it was necessary to stop several times to give Dr. Leal the opportunity to remove the clot of blood from the opening to the wound. This usually short and simple trip from the theater to the house right across the street took about 25 minutes to complete. 
A barrier of men had been formed to keep back the crowds on each side of an open space leading to the house. Those who went ahead reported that the house directly opposite the theater was closed. Leal saw a man urging them toward the house of William Pearson, which was diagonally opposite of the theater. The best room in the house was offered for the president, although the bed was too small for the exceptionally tall Lincoln, and so his body had to be placed diagonally on the bed. After clearing everyone out of the room, including Mrs. Lincoln, Dr. Leal and the other, other medical professionals present performed a thorough physical examination of the president, just to make sure there were no other wounds. Once Dr. Leal was certain there were no other wounds, he sent for bottles of hot water and hot blankets, since the president's body was cold. Once Lincoln's body was made presentable, Dr. Leal assigned Dr. Taft and Dr. King with the duty of keeping his head upon the pillows in the most comfortable position, relieving each other in this duty. An officer was then sent by Leal to notify Mrs. Lincoln that she may return to her husband. She came in and sat on a chair placed for her at the head of the bed. After doing all that was professionally necessary, Dr. Leal stood aside for a general view and to think what to do next. He ordered that messengers be sent to the White House for the President's son, Captain Robert T. Lincoln, also for the Surgeon General, Joseph K. Barnes, Surgeon D. Willard Bliss, who was in charge of the Armory Square General Hospital, the President's family physician, Dr. Robert K. Stone, and to each member of the President's cabinet. Having been taught in early youth to pay great respect to all religious denominations in regard to their rules concerning the sick or dying, it became Dr. Leal's duty as surgeon in charge of the dying president to summon a clergyman to his bedside. Therefore, after inquiring and being informed that the Reverend Dr. Gurley was Mrs. Lincoln's pastor, Leal immediately sent for him. Upon the arrival of Lincoln's family physician, the Surgeon General, and Assistant Surgeon General, Leal reported what he had done and officially detailed to the Surgeon General his diagnosis, stating that whenever the clot was allowed to form over the opening to the wound, the President's breathing became greatly unsettled. The Surgeon General approved the treatment and Dr. Leal's original plan of treatment was continued in every respect until the President's death. The Surgeon General probed the wound, locating the bullet and some bone fragments, and throughout the night, as the hemorrhage continued, blood clots were removed to relieve pressure on the President's brain. At one time during the night, Mrs. Lincoln exclaimed, sobbing bitterly, quote, Oh, that my little Taddy might see his father before he died, end quote. This was decided not advisable. 12-year-old Tad Lincoln, who had been watching a play of Aladdin at Grover's Theater when he learned of his father's assassination, was kept away. As Mrs. Lincoln sat on a chair by the side of the bed with her face to her husband's, his breathing became very gruff and the loud, unnatural noise frightened her in her exhausted, agonized condition. She sprang up suddenly with a piercing cry and fell fainting to the floor. Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton heard her cry, and entered the room with raised arms, called out loudly, quote, take that woman out and do not let her in again, end quote. 
Mrs. Lincoln was helped up kindly and assisted in a fainting condition from the room. As Captain Lincoln was consoling his mother in another room, and as Dr. Leo had promised Mrs. Lincoln he would do anything he could possibly do for her husband, he stood in for the family and continuously held the president's right hand, firmly. The hand that had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, liberating four million slaves. The main reason for holding his hand, however, was that Dr. Leo hoped that the president would somehow know that he was in touch with humanity and had a friend. As morning dawned, it became quite evident that the president was sinking and at several times his pulse could not be counted. While everyone was anxiously watching in profound solemn silence, the Reverend Dr. Gurley said, let us pray and offered a most impressive prayer. On the morning of April 15, 1865, at 7.22 a.m., Dr. Charles A. Leal announced that President Abraham Lincoln was dead. After a prayer was said, Dr. Leal gently smoothed the president's contracted facial muscles, took two coins from his pocket, placed them over Lincoln's eyelids, and drew a white sheet over the fallen president's face. Dr. Leal believed he had been the means, in God's hand, of prolonging the life of President Abraham Lincoln for nine hours. After all was over, and as Dr. Leo stood by the side of the covered mortal remains of the 16th president, he thought, quote, you have fulfilled your promise to the wife. Your duty now is to the many living, suffering, and wounded officers committed to your care in your ward at Armory Square General Hospital, end quote. He then left the house in deep meditation, and in his lonely walk, he was distracted from his thoughts by the cold, drizzling rain dropping on his bare head. His hat had been left in his seat at the theater. His clothing was stained with blood. He had not once been seated since he first sprang to the president's aid. He was cold, weary, and sad. The dawn of peace was once again clouded. The most cruel war in history had not completely ended. Our long-suffering country vividly came before him as he thought how essential it was to have an organization composed of returning soldiers to guard and protect the officers of state and uphold the Constitution. This great need was instantly recognized by others, for on that day, April 15, 1865, there assembled at Philadelphia three veterans of the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps who founded the Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States. The funeral services for President Lincoln, held on Wednesday, April 19, was attended by Dr. Charles A. Leal, who was assigned a place at the head of the coffin at the White House, and a carriage immediately preceding the catafalque in the grand funeral procession from the White House to the Capitol, where during the public ceremonies, Leal was assigned to a place at the head of the casket as it rested beneath the rotunda. After the war had closed, 
Governor Fenton of New York State approached Dr. Leal and said, quote, Dr. Leal, I will give you anything possible within my power, end quote. Leal responded, quote, I sincerely thank you, Governor, but I desire nothing as I wish to follow my mission in life, end quote. In 1866, Dr. Charles A. Leal received an, honor, an honorable discharge from the Army with the rank of Brevet Captain. In March 1866, he traveled to Europe where he studied Asiatic cholera, and by the following year, he was married to Rebecca Midwin Copcut, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Copcut. Mr. John Copcut was a prominent industrialist and contributed significantly to the development of Yonkers, New York where the young couple were married at the Copcut Mansion. The mansion still stands today as the rectory of St. Cashmere's Church on Nepperhan Avenue in Yonkers. Leal and his wife would go on to raise five children. Leal was active in charitable causes, serving for 20 years as trustee of the New York Institution for the Instruction of the Deaf and Dumb. In 1883, he was elected trustee of St. John's Guild a floating hospital and seaside nursery, and in 1891, he was made president of St. John's Guild. Dr. Leal never wanted to talk about his care of the assassinated President Lincoln, as he wanted to devote his life to the care and treatment of the sick. However, in the year that marked 100 years since Lincoln's birth, February 1909 to be exact, Charles Leal de delivered an address called Lincoln's Last Hours. In his address to the New York Commandery of the Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States, Leal described what happened on that historic night, beginning at the theater and culminating across the street in the house owned by a man named Peterson, where the wounded president died. On February 23, 1923, Leal's wife, Re Rebecca, died and was buried in Oakland Cemetery in Yonkers. Leal continued to practice medicine until his retirement in 1928 at the age of 86. On June 13, 1932, Dr. Charles Leal died at his home, 1261 Madison Avenue in Manhattan. He was 90 years old. Funeral services were held at the Church of the Heavenly Rest on 5th Avenue and 90th Street, with internment at Oakland Cemetery next to his wife. Dr. Charles Leal saved the bloodstained cuffs of his shirt after treating the wounded Lincoln. They remained in the family until his granddaughter donated them to the National Museum of American History in 2017. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Each episode of Hidden History will explore a story that has been hidden in the pages of history and needs to be told. Pictures and newspaper articles relating to a particular episode will be available on our website. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Rodriguez and this has been Hidden History, an odyssey through time.